Welcome to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. My name is Shango Los, and I will be your host today. Dr. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist, psychopharmacology researcher, and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of the cannabis drug Sativex. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Massachusetts Medical School before residencies in pediatrics in Phoenix, Arizona, and in child and adult neurology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He was a clinical neurologist in Missoula, Montana for 20 years in a practice with a strong chronic pain component. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical performing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He joined GW Pharmaceuticals as a full-time consultant in 2003. He is currently past president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He is author of The Handbook of Psychotropic Herbs, co-editor of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, Pharmacology, Toxicology, and Therapeutic Potential, and author of The Last Sorcerer, Echoes of the Rainforest. He was founding editor of the Journal of Cannabis Therapeutics, selections of which were published as books, Cannabis Therapeutics and HIV AIDS, Women and Cannabis, Medicine, Science, and Sociology, and Cannabis from Pariah to Prescription, and so many more. He is presently Medical Director at Phytex, an American company developing endocannabinoid-based medicines. Everything that contemporary cannabis healers talk about in relation to cannabis as medicine is based on Ethan's published research. Cannabis terpenes, their healing powers and volatility, the entourage effect and whole plant medicine, and endocannabinoid deficiency. Today, he is here to speak with us about endocannabinoid deficiency. Welcome, Dr. Russo. Thank you. So, Dr. Russo, your research supports that each human has an underlying endocannabinoid tone that reflects the state of their body's cannabinoid receptors and that a deficient amount of endocannabinoids can lead to all sorts of physical failures in the body. Would you explain to me what you mean by endocannabinoid tone and how it offers insights to the state of the body as a whole? Sure. The endocannabinoid system is a system in the body that is one that promotes homeostasis, a balance in other functions. It consists of three components. There are cannabinoid receptors in the body uh, where THC in cannabis binds. Um, but the endocannabinoid system is a lot older than cannabis, so cannabis is not uh, there uh, just to, uh, to get us high. This wasn't how the system originated. Uh, rather, these uh, receptors are in the brain uh, one called CB1, cannabinoid 1, is the psychoactive receptor. This is where THC works, but it has many important functions in the brain, including regulation of pain, seizure threshold, whether someone will be epileptic or not, whether they become nauseated. Uh, it regulates levels of neurotransmitters, chemical messengers in the brain. Uh, additionally, there's a CB2, another receptor that's mainly thought of as being out in the body where it's involved in, again, regulation of pain and inflammatory responses. So the receptors are one component of the endocannabinoid system. Um, there are endogenous cannabinoids. These are natural chemicals in the body, anandamide and 2-AG are their names, of the, the best characterized ones. These resemble THC in their activity. So a lot of what THC does 
is paralleled by the effects of these natural chemicals in the body that everyone has. The third component of the endocannabinoid system is um, the enzymes that make the endocannabinoids and break them down. So if there are too many receptors or too much uh, endocannabinoid uh, or there is a deficit in enzymatic activity, uh, any of these things can throw the balance off in the system. Um, so uh, someone having decreased endocannabinoid tone could come about because they have too few receptors or they have too few endocannabinoids. Um, but ultimately the body tries to keep these in balance so that uh, systems work at their best. Okay, so the endocannabinoid tone itself, uh, in your papers it sounds like that may be um, a quantifiable or measurable thing. What exactly would you say the endocannabinoid tone is? Well, it would reflect the amount of endogenous cannabinoids in the body, that would be one, but it would also be affected by the number of receptors that were active, and that's something that can be in flux it can change upwards or downwards. Let me give an example. If someone uses a great deal of cannabis daily, it will actually down-regulate the receptor. In other words, uh, the body tries to present, prevent excesses of activity, and it will do that by inactivating uh, the receptor if there's too much activity. So that could happen. There are also things that can up regulate the receptor, make it more active. So it is a function of all three. And it's not an easy thing to measure either. I'm sure that people wonder already uh, if they might have an endocannabinoid deficiency. Uh, right now, this isn't accessible by any simple uh, blood test. The amount of, say, anandamide, one of the endocannabinoids, in the blood can be measured but with great difficulty. It's a research technique. The material actually breaks down so rapidly that if someone's blood sample is taken to test it, it's got to be immediately put in a liquid nitrogen and sent off to a specialty lab that does this kind of work. Certainly it's not uh, available at your friendly local uh, hospital uh, to test. In actuality, the best way to test wouldn't be in the blood. Most of these conditions would be reflected in brain activity. So a better way would be to test the cerebrospinal fluid. That's what you get when a spinal tap or lumbar puncture is done. Because that's an invasive procedure, we don't do that uh, in this kind of situation except as a research technique either. Someday, hopefully soon, there might be a way to do imaging of the brain to assess the endocannabinoid activity. That would be the best way, uh, hopefully without requiring any needle sticks or anything else that's invasive. But right now, um, for most people, this is going to be what we call a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that if other things are not identified as the culprit, it may be that uh, this is going on. It will be what's called a clinical diagnosis based on the pattern of the illness. So um, um, 
in the idea of the tone, it sounds like if you have too many or too little on either side of the relationship, either between the receptors or the cannabinoids themselves, that is where the issue is. So does it not really matter if you have a, a smaller relationship, less receptors and less cannabinoids, or more receptors and more cannabinoids? That isn't as much of the difference. The question is whether or not they are equal. Right. So uh, yeah, I think you've identified the issue. Uh, you can have too many receptors, um, but not enough endocannabinoids. Uh, really, they need to be in balance. This brings to the fore an issue I should emphasize at this point. The whole function of the endocannabinoid system is what's called as a homeostatic regulator. Let's break that down. Homeostasis is a balance in bodily function. Um, the endocannabinoid system regulates how other aspects of physiology, how our body works. Let's give a couple of examples. Um, one of the main things the endocannabinoid system does in the brain is regulate the amount of neurotransmitters, uh, their activity. Uh, neurotransmitters are chemical messengers in the brain that allow one nerve to talk to another. Let's say, for example, that there's too much glutamate activity. This is one of those neurotransmitters. It's stimulatory. In other words, uh, one nerve communicating with the next increases its signal. That's all well and good. It's a necessary function, but when it's present in excess, it will do two things that are potentially bad. One is it produces neuropathic pain, nerve-based pain, a very severe kind of pain that's associated with nerve problems out in the body or nerve damage in the brain. That's one. Additionally, glutamate activity is excessive uh, after head injury or strokes, so much so that it actually can kill brain cells. So you understand then that if there's too much glutamate that the endocannabinoid system, if it's able to bring those levels down, um, is a helpful thing in promoting health. Um, but if we look at systems beyond the brain, the digestion, hormonal systems, uh, the skin, uh, regulation of pain, uh, whether or not somebody will have a seizure, all of these are regulated by the endocannabinoid system. Now the really surprising thing is this system has only been described for about 20 years, a little bit more. And uh, we wouldn't know about it yet, maybe, if we didn't know about cannabis, because it was through the study of THC and cannabis and other cannabinoids that this system was discovered. It likely would have taken another one or two decades to recognize it and its importance had it not been for this relationship. So if, um, if the cannabinoid to cannabinoid receptors being um, out of balance causes impacts, um, it begs the question for, for patients at home who are um, self-medicating with cannabis, um, is it possible that they could uh, intake too much uh, uh, cannabinoid precursors or uh, through like RSO or something and end up um, over flushing their brain with endocannabinoids and, yeah, and throwing themselves out of whack? Right. I mean, that's certainly a risk. Um, most 
cannabis-based therapeutics is, uh, re requires very low doses, particularly of THC. Um, the danger in excessive intake is what's called tolerance or downregulation. We mentioned a little while ago that uh, if there's too much activity, the, the um, cannabinoid receptors will become less active. This is what happens when somebody uses so much THC uh, that they become tolerant to it. Uh, what the consumer would notice is the amount of cannabis that previously would give them the effect they wanted, saying feeling high, no longer worked, that they needed a lot more. Um, in contrast, when people are treating uh, symptoms, particularly those associated with what we call uh, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, and that would be migraine, uh, fibromyalgia, and idiopathic bowel syndrome, or spastic colon as three examples, what they seem to respond to in contrast are very low doses uh, of a cannabis-based medicine. And that could be low doses of THC or perhaps higher doses of cannabidiol, which tends to itself um, promote uh, the function of anandamide, one of the endocannabinoids, and help bring the systems into balance better. Um, so two of the ailments that you talk about in your research are both uh, the bowel syndrome and migraines. And as a migraine sufferer, I was very interested in reading the specific mechanics of how the, um, the endocannabinoid tone being out of balance uh, creates an opportunity for migraines. Um, whichever you think is the better example, would you, would you choose one of those and get into specifics about the mechanics of it so, so, so folks can um, kind of picture it for themselves, the role that endocannabinoid system plays in um, the ailment? Sure. Well, let's, let's choose migraine. Now, uh, this is one of those situations where there's a real danger of oversimplification because this is really complicated. Um, for something that so many people get, migraine is incredibly complex and to this day still poorly understood. What we know is this. Um, there's no blood test for it. Um, there's nothing, no test specifically that tells you that someone has it, but it's totally based on the clinical pattern, and that is a type of headache that's often primarily one-sided. It tends to have a beating quality. It can be associated with nausea. It can be very severe. And it's also associated with what are called uh, photophobia and phonophobia. Respectively, those mean a sensitivity of the eyes to light and ears to sound. So things that are normally uh, not painful become painful to the patient having a migraine. Now this says a lot um, because it indicates that everything's geared up too high. Um, it's like the filters are off when somebody has this. They have this terrible pounding pain, nausea, sensitivity of uh, eyes to light and ears to sound, uh, and it's really a miserable condition. What we know, and this has been proven now, given that I wrote my initial big paper on the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency in 2004, we have 11 years of subsequent research that actually shows that anandamide, one of the endogenous cannabinoids, is lower in people with migraine. 
Uh, this was done in the cerebrospinal fluid with spinal taps. Uh, this is a study I had suggested way back when, but I didn't think that it could be performed ethically in the United States. Well, I guess um, they were able to do it in Italy because that's exactly what they showed was that there was a significant lowering of uh, anandamide in the spinal fluid of people with migraine as compared to those uh, who didn't have it. Um, so uh, in essence, that was the first, I think, real objective proof of clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. But um, it's interesting because every symptom that I mentioned uh, in relation to migraine seems to be alleviated pretty well uh, by treatment with um, cannabis or uh, to a lesser extent THC on its own. Um, you know, when I was in neurology practice, uh, among the patients uh, in practice and patients who reported to me, about 80% of people who use cannabis to treat migraine uh, seemed to find it uh, helpful, both at the time, uh, taking it when they have a headache, and especially as a preventive. Now, people may think that that's new. It's actually not. Um, the first mention of this in the literature may have been 4,000 years ago. Uh, if we read the signs right from the ancient uh, Akkadian and Sumerian uh, writings. Uh, but certainly we know this. Between about 1840 and 1940, uh, cannabis was a mainstream medicine, both in Europe and the US. Actually, migraine was one of the most frequently reported uses for cannabis and uh, great success was noted with those preparations. Now, they had a lot of problems with quality control that wouldn't be evident uh, now uh, if medicine's made properly. Uh, so I think that this has great promise for the future. For a patient who is self-medicating and until the day comes that um, potentially there is an FDA-tested medicine out, what would you say would be the, the appropriate um, way for a patient to medicate? Do you think that an, uh, an RSO preparation um, is appropriate? Um, do you think that actually um, smoking it so it takes effect more quickly? Well, what is the, the method of delivery that you think is most likely to be effective? Well, it's a complex topic. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I think that the solution here is very low doses. And so starting with a concentrate would be risky. What tends to happen there, particularly for a medical patient, especially in this context, is uh, it's very easy to overshoot. A patient should be treating to the point of symptom control, not psychoactivity. Chances are with a concentrate, the first inhalation uh, is going to make them quite high, and it might reduce their symptoms, but uh, maybe more than they need. Um, the ideal treatment to me in this situation is one that allows the patient to reduce their symptoms or eliminate them, but still function. In other words, um, people are not necessarily looking to uh, have mental changes from their medicine. They're looking for relief, and particularly um, for people who need to be working or studying, it would be great to be able to get rid of the pain nausea, etc., uh, and still be able to uh, work, uh, not feel high, and certainly this can be done. 
So uh, the approach would ideally be, I think, um, to have a medicine that was primarily cannabidiol, perhaps a very small amount of THC, and again, used in uh, a way, um, in a very sequential way. In other words, a very small amount to the point of benefit on symptoms, and hopefully without psychoactivity. Um, what would you say the appropriate ratio would be? Would it be something as simple as a two to one or, or as high of a CBD to THC ratio as you can manage? Really the latter. Unfortunately, not all consumers who even have legal access in the states where they live are going to have reliable lab tests on which to base their attempts at treatment. So it really is what we call a therapeutic experiment. But my best advice in all instances is to start low and go slow, particularly for the person who might have chronic, frequent migraines. Um, treating this preventively certainly should uh, start with the lowest possible doses, working up very slowly to the point that there's benefit on the frequency and severity of the migraine attacks. Um, Given that it's a chronic condition, the idea ideally is to get better, but get better slowly without creating side effects. The problem with many cannabis-based medicines is if, um, particularly a naive patient who hasn't used cannabis before, if their first experience is a bad one, which can happen particularly with concentrates, they may not return to it. They may have lost a good opportunity to successfully treat their condition. That would be a shame, um, but that's just one of, among many reasons that I think uh, the slow, what we call titration, slow increase in dose is the best approach uh, to this kind of clinical problem. Now that we know that this kind of um, lack of balance has such an effect, what direction is the research going in? I mean, now that we know that it exists, is the research moving towards how can we test for this without a spinal tap, or or, or is there some other area that's that's hot right now? Well, that's been slow, and I'd like to help change that. I um, am hoping that in the next few years uh, we can work with colleagues on uh, doing brain imaging, like I mentioned, that would give us an idea of the state of someone's endocannabinoid system. We can look with uh, special testing at levels in the blood uh, of the endogenous cannabinoids uh, in other conditions and see if uh, we can produce correlations that would support that these are really important uh, in how that disease works, uh, like I suspect uh, is the case. Um, because again, this isn't limited to migraine at all, uh, but certainly fibromyalgia, idiopathic bowel syndrome, and possibly many others, including such common current problems as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, there's very good evidence that uh, there is uh, an endocannabinoid deficiency operative in that disorder. Um, you said earlier that the endocannabinoid system, um, we've been aware of it for about 20 years, and, and your cornerstone research on it uh, was published in 2004. And here we are now in 2015, and, and it's just now finding its way out of academia and into citizen healers and patients' um, knowledge. Um, why do you think that it's taken so long for, for it to reach the, 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 the patients? 
Well, it's like anything else. Um, you know, not everything gets noticed uh, when it's first mentioned. At the time I wrote the paper in 2004, there was not a lot of objective evidence. In the paper, I tried to assemble what was known about how these dis diseases worked and how they were affected uh, by the endogenous cannabinoid system and by cannabis. Um, but since then, things have really changed in that, as I mentioned, there's been the objective proof of an endocannabinoid deficiency in migraine. There's been a lot of other evidence too. Uh, if I could uh, talk about fibromyalgia for a minute, this has a lot in common with migraine and they tend to happen in the same people. Fibromyalgia is a painful muscle uh, spasm and pain condition. Now, what it has in common with migraine is you can't see anything. If you look at the tissues, it looks okay. Uh, if you scan it, it looks okay. But again, like migraine, there is pain out of proportion to what seems to be necessary. Um, the pain can wander around the body. It can be quite disabling. It's associated with a, a sleep disorder. Um, and unfortunately, although it's very common, it's treated very poorly by available medicines. Um, in 2014, the National Pain Report came out with a survey of 1,300 fibromyalgia patients and asking them how they responded to several agents. There are actually three drugs approved in the U.S. to treat it. These are called duloxetine, milnasopran, and pregabalin. The first two are antidepressants that work on serotonin and norepinephrine, increasing the amounts of both. Um, and the third is an anticonvulsant, a seizure medicine that's actually used to treat nerve-based pain. However, um, these 1,300 patients who responded to the survey, they found um, that these three drugs, duloxetine was very effective in only 8%, milnasopran in only 10%, and pregabalin in only 10%. Um, they found that uh, they got a little bit of help with duloxetine 32%, milnasopran 22%, and pregabalin 29%. However, uh, people felt that they got no help at all from these drugs, duloxetine 60%, milnasopran 68%, and pregabalin 61%. So this is pretty bad. Now let's compare with those people who use cannabis. 62% reported cannabis is very effective for this condition. So that's six times better than any of the drugs uh, that were approved for it. Um, in the cannabis patients, 33% additionally found that it helped a little and only 5% got no benefit at all. Um, so- uh, Probably with I mean, a lot less side effects too. Uh, hopefully. Uh, but uh, if one looks at the graph, as I do in front of me, it, it's pretty readily apparent that there's a big qualitative difference on um, that cannabis uh, clearly is the best medicine as compared to the three approved FDA-approved drugs uh, for this condition. Obviously, we need to do better, and uh, hopefully soon there will be legal access for cannabis-based medicines whether prescription or otherwise, for other people that have this condition, which is actually 
uh, the most common diagnosis uh, amongst rheumatologists um, in the U.S. So uh, it's a very common condition. So chances are we're opening a lot of folks' eyes to endocannabinoid deficiency just with our interview. For folks who are now interested in the topic and they want to find out more, um, it's a pretty um, obscure topic. Where would you recommend that people go to find out more? Uh, well, hopefully uh, we can provide a URL uh, to my study. Um, there are lots of other studies. Uh, additionally, we'll be talking about this at the Patients Out of Time conference coming up later in May um, in West Palm Beach, Florida. Eventually, a uh, recording of the talk I give there, which will be similar content to our discussion today, uh, will be online later. That'll also be available uh, for continuing medical education credit so that patients could suggest that their doctors see this and they can get credit uh, for it from watching it online. Um, so, and additionally, because there's been 11 years of additional research in this area, I hope to write another article about this soon. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Russo, thank you for joining me today and thanks for sharing with us about endocannabinoid deficiency. Thank you. Dr. Ethan Russo is a world-renowned neurologist and cannabis researcher. I am Shango Lose, founder of the Vashon Island Marijuana Entrepreneurs Alliance. Thank you for listening to Gontrepreneur.com.